exactly. Yeah. We would be the problem. So again, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, are we going to be talking with another follow up podcast about a, can- a cannabis crisis that was created back in the old twenty twenty? I certainly hope not. And that's where I hope discussions like this gets people to informed and, and and to speak up and 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 do things right. What I also worry about is I think things are changing, but I remember. You can go back to when you interview for medical school also. <clears throat> can you imagine if, you know, you're at, because they always ask you about your hobbies. You know, what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> right. And if you give an answer that says, oh, well, you know, after work, at the end of the week, it's Friday. I like to go out with friends. Happy hour. Yep. Yeah, that's what I do on my Fridays. And sometimes I do it on Wednesdays and Mondays. <laughs> you know, happy hour. Right. And happy hour is essentially cheap drinks. Cheap food, you know, friends yep. get together and do that. That's that's not a problem. Yeah. But if someone during their medical school, medical school interview were to say, hey, on a Friday night, I like to smoke a little bit, read a good book, yep. you know, sit in the tub and, you know, that's my Friday. I don't yeah. have work Saturday or Sunday. That person, I don't think would get into school. And again, they can't say that now because that's still federally an illegal activity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if if I worked in the Veterans Administration, the hospitals for the VA, they still random urine drug test their employees and their doctors because it's federally illegal. Mm -hmm. Because technically that's a violation of the drug-free workplace, which is one of the federal government parts. So again, but again... But imagine now, just what you just said, mm-hmm. now more and more parents and families are like, okay, that's fine. When I grew up, if I said that to my dad and mom, oh, you know what? We're not going to drink tonight, but Johnny's coming over and he's bringing a fresh batch of OG Kush, <laughs> but we're not going to drive anywhere and he's going to sleep over. Is that okay, mom? And we want to order some pizzas. Can you imagine the 80s saying that? Oh, no. Now I was 20- only two during the 80s. But. <laughs> but, in, but in 2020, that conversation is happening tonight Yeah, in some household in uh, Los Angeles. So yeah. some people always say, well, what, what are the things that you want to make sure people know? And I, I always have some, some take-homes I like. No cannabis for anyone under 21. I don't see this as, a, a, as an agree. adolescent product. This yeah. is an adult product. Number two, respect the power of the plant. So we have a plant, again, that has incredible potential. But we're not there yet to determine proper dosage, proper route of administration. How long should you take it? And imagine the way medical cannabis has been built for the last 20 years in California. It's not proper. If I see you as a doctor and I want to see you and you recommend cannabis to me, as it stands right now, I don't go back and see you ever again. That just doesn't make sense. The proper way is I see you and you have education and knowledge about what proper cannabis usage is, what strains use, what dosage, what formulations, what indications. Oh, if you have back pain, you should use a sativa. If you have anxiety, you should use uh, edibles. If you have PTSD, you should use two joints of sativa followed by two edibles of indica at 4 o'clock. That level of precision is nowhere near. Right. That, that hasn't been established. So that's number, 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 number the next point, respect the power of the plant. And the last thing is about addiction. The addiction risk is real. It happens about 9% from the very first time you take cannabis. You have a 9% chance of developing an addiction to cannabis. Now, 9% sounds like, is that a lot or is that a little bit? So the very first time you use cocaine, that number is like 25, 30%. 
the very first time you use heroin, that number is like 25%. The first time you eat a kale salad, that you develop an addiction to a kale salad, I think it's like less than 0.000000. Less than, zero, less zero, than zero, zero, zero. Yeah. Less than that. So it's not zero. <laughs> it's less than these other substances, but it's not insignificant. Could you repeat that one more time? Yeah. <laughs> 9% from the very first time you ingest cannabis, there's about a 9% chance that you could develop a cannabis use disorder. Now, to lower that limit, and the most biggest predictors, again, earlier onset, meaning the uh, first time you ever try. So the younger you are that you try, and then the more frequent you use, that also escalates the rate of addiction. So that's why it's so important for us to tell our, uh, the, the young people, if you do use, use sparingly, or delay the uh, onset from the very first time you actually ingest. There's a huge difference between someone who starts at 12 years old versus 22. Huge difference between someone, a high school student who uses once a month, who then uses versus who uses four times a month. If you're using it more frequently or you start at a younger age, your risk of developing that addiction actually is way higher than 9%. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation mm -hmm. about, yes, it is Yes, it's different from heroin. Yes, it's different from cocaine, but it's still it can still be harmful. It's not benign. Right. These are with fifteen and sixteen year olds. Yeah. That I'm having these conversations with. And then I have to go and try to actually figure out why they're using. Yeah. A lot of them aren't using because it's fun. Right. They're using it because they have anxiety. Anxiety or they're depressed or ADD. I'm or... like, what well, what do you mean you have anxiety? You're fifteen. <laughs> right. You're fifteen. Yeah. What what's going? What else is going on? Yeah. Essentially, and you know those conversations are are tough because again, I'm coming at it from the perspective of, hey, I'm a I'm a doctor, and a lot of them already right. have this idea that I'm already going to tell them no to this, no right. to that. It's like, listen, man, I've been there. Can, can you talk a little bit about the effects of cannabis on brain development? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is again, you're a child adolescent psychiatrist. You know this better than I. But I know a little bit. Here's yes. <laughs> here's the facts that we know now. We know that. The earlier you start using, and if you start using regularly, the more likely you will actually create memory and cognitive problems by the time you reach the age of 30. Mm -hmm. So, but if you don't start using cannabis until after 2021, 20, you don't have those cognitive impairments when you reach the age of 30. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a substance that changes the course of brain growth and development. Yeah. Well, what else changes the brain growth and development? Alcohol, tobacco, sugar, video games, probably, um, Diet Cola. I mean, all caffeine, all that stuff does. So I think that's, that's and again, the other part that a lot of parents still, it's amazing to me they don't grasp, is that the cannabis available in 2020 is not the cannabis available in 1990. Again, parents don't. If they're not familiar with that world, they go, oh, yeah, it's just weed. You know, when I was in high school, we used a little bit. Those street percentages of THC back in 1990 was about 3 to 6%. Seizures of just cannabis seized by the police. Mm -hmm. Now, cannabis seized by the police, that average medium THC content is as high as 30 to 40%. When the when the THC is that high, where is this? Is the CBD level different? Well, it's there's two things. Well, Depends. again, it's potency. So again, okay. it's about 
potency meaning what is the potency of THC content inside that cannabis by weight that I'm consuming. Okay. So if it's whether if it's a flower or if it's an oil or if it's uh, some of the harder products are called wax or shatter or you know those those things those are by weight way way more potent with THC. So that when you ingest an ounce or half an ounce or you know whatever the same by weight their potency is way level so much much higher and that's where the the differences happen higher potency products that are again 70 80 percent thc are going to have a huge impact on the body brain and mind again it's like alcohol you know whether you use 40 proof or 80 proof you know you're gonna have a way different experience based on potency crack cocaine is a way potent form of cocaine which is why it was so much more reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Is higher potency THC products like wax and shatter and dabs, are they more reinforcing? Of course they are. Do people like them? Of course they do. Do some people have more adverse effects? Of course they do. And that's where some folks, unfortunately, get psychotic or confused or have impairments. One of my favorite memes on the internet that's propagated is, you see, number of deaths caused every year by opiates, it'll say 70,000. Mm-hmm. Number of deaths caused every year by tobacco, 500,000. Number of deaths caused every year by cannabis, zero. And, and, and then I'll say, any questions? Oh, I love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. and so people get there, yeah, 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 yeah. But I say that's incorrect because the number of overdose deaths from cannabis is zero. People don't die from intoxication and overdose like they would from heroin but they die while intoxicated car accidents. They fall off roofs. They get shot. You know, they gets have a lace with something. Yeah. Gets and, laced and, and, yeah. And so, uh, and they die. So it's not, that's false. Now people would then say, Oh, but it's nowhere near the 70,000 deaths in America from opioids. Well, that's because we don't have an equivalent cannabis product that is like Oxycontin or, or fentanyl yet. Now we do again have these 70, 80% products. So they're, they're definitely out there. So there's concern about that, again, falsely giving a false sense of security that again, it's just weed and that it's fine. Again, I think of this as like seat belts or, you know, food we eat. I mean, there's risk in everything we do. There's risk in video games. There's risk in the internet. There's risk in social media. There's risk in just the air we breathe, particularly here in California. (laughs) And so when you put it all together, when you start putting cannabis in that same category and say, it's just stuff that's available in our world, but let's evaluate how risky this is to you. Then suddenly we can get away from this conversation of, oh, it's, you know, you don't get it and, you know, you're old, you don't understand it. So no, this is just what's out there and let's really understand that risk and evaluate those risks a lot better. I mean, do you talk about... Seatbelts to your your kids? I mean, is that something that comes up much? To, well, the, the parents tend to. I mean, people just know. Yeah, where it's ingrained it's not, it's not in our question. society. That, yeah. but uh, you know, it's interesting. I grew up in a world where seatbelts were just starting to get regulated. I remember as a kid, a lot of pushback by people saying, "You're forcing me to wear seatbelts." Well, that's not that's my God given right not to. So, and now, fast forward twenty years, there's it's not even a question. People just do it. I wonder if that's where we're heading with mask wearing. Like, oh yeah, wait, it's no, nothing's changed. Nothing's you think you changed, think things yeah. have changed? People exactly. just always want to. Oh, that's my right to. That's do my this right to do it. Yeah, it's my right to kill myself if I want. So yeah. yeah, man. I um again, this is just what you just said within the past five minutes. Again, I want to go back to what was said earlier, folks. You can do whatever you want. It's your life. But I 
I think you and I, you and I can both agree on this. If you choose to use cannabis or Coke or whatever it is you choose to use, just have all the facts, yeah. have all the information. I will say this though, for kids, I am a little bit more aggressive with, no, <laughs> 15, 16 yeah. year olds. I'm a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. I mean, because you mentioned the, uh, the, the brain development, you know, for, and I explained this too, teenagers can typically grasp this, right? Everything that we do in the brain, I mean, this is all, it's myelin. That's too scientific of a word for people to understand, mm -hmm. but brain development means that there are connections that are being made right. for proper decisions to be made. Right in the brain. Right. And when you use cannabis, you're going to slow down those connections and That's things right. aren't connecting like they should and yeah. you're going to make you're going to make worse decisions. That's right. Right? If you yeah. if you slow down the process, yeah. you only get about 26 years to get a fully formed brain. That's right. You know? That's right. And cannabis can slow it down yeah. and also when when I say slow it down, that means again, using it excessively, yeah. using it at high potency. Right. And and sometimes when you explain that to kids, they they get it. They they yeah. get it more. I, I like the house the house analogy. Like if your brain is a house and you're building a house mm. and you want to build it with the fastest internet speed possible, right? And if you use fiber optic cords and you run it up to the basement, into the bedroom, to everywhere, and the, and that cord is clean and it's tight and everything's good, you're gonna get fast connections throughout the house. But if you use cheap material, or you do a shoddy job, mm -hmm. or you don't put the proper covering on the cable and it's loose, or you introduce water and and water gets into the cable, or or, or termites start chewing away the cable, and then those connections don't go well. And I think about all those things in life, sleep deprivation, trauma, um, substances. Mm. Those are all things that interfere with that house being built, with those connections and cables being properly laid down. Right. Um, it's an easy analogy. People get that. I like it because people will say, oh, my gosh, well, if I screw it up now, is there a way to repair it? Of course, we can bring in a repairman. And while you're young, we can lay down new cable. We can lay down new alternate ways of getting the internet in various parts of your basement. But when you're older, that damage is just it's bad. Done. It's there. Or you no. go for years of neglect yeah. and you don't take care of it early. By the time you then want to look at it, it's you can't replace it. Right. And I, th I think that that's a powerful message. But again, you go back to what is the demand for people? Why do people have such demand for cannabis? And I think that's the other part we're trying to really study and examine is because it's so... How much of this demand for cannabis is being pushed because of the industry saying this is great and pop culture and people celebrating or how much of it is because there's a really interesting product out there. The demand for cell phones and smartphones is huge because these are amazing products that people want. Is that the same thing for cannabis? You know, is it, you know, an amazing product that more and more people really, really want? So some of the things we're beginning to see is that most of the cannabis purchased in California is by a very small percentage of people, the people who use a lot. You know, um, how many new introductions to cannabis happen every year because of billboards? We, we really don't know. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like how many people would never have tried cannabis now are trying it because it's readily available? Well, it's a it's a whole culture, the whole culture and everything. Yeah. And, and the, they have the an way award show. Yeah, and the way it's portrayed and the way it's highlighted, CBD, wellness, health, go ahead and try some, won't hurt you. And again, for the vast majority of people who use cannabis, it probably won't. But for those who do, 9% develop an addiction. Or for those who develop a mental health 
condition caused by cannabis well use. Let, let's let's cover that now yeah. so if <clears throat> the connection between cannabis and psychiatry patients that we see in our offices what does cannabis do or not do for those people we're talking about depression we're talking about anxiety what, what happens when you mix cannabis with somebody that might be i guess at risk or all sorts of things good bad ugly and everywhere in between okay. <laughs> the way i think of it, if you were a patient i'd say here look we know that cannabis has the therapeutic potential to treat mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. Can it treat depression? Can it treat anxiety? Can it treat PTSD trauma? Sure, but the science studies right now say that it, it does not have that ability. On the flip side, we know that, and that's number one, number two, cannabis, without a doubt, if you have depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, makes those conditions worse doesn't make them better and that's where a lot of patients get hung up they're like whoa what are you talking about it totally makes it better i sleep better cannabis may make the symptoms of your mental health condition better insomnia suicidal thinking but it doesn't make the full condition better so in other words you may temporarily feel a little bit better but in the long run you're still going to be suffering problems from the depression anxiety and i think that that's so important number three you know Surprisingly, we, people are shocked when they hear this, but cannabis increases the risk of suicidal thinking. Mm. Cannabis increases the impulsive behavior of people to go do things like gamble excessively or use more drugs or you know, sleep with other people you shouldn't have, putting yourself in risky positions that then lead to potentially really traumatic situations, assaults, arrests, robbery, burglary, you name it. So the last part, of course, is does cannabis, if you take it, could you then develop, say, a depression or a psychotic illness that you would not have developed at all had you never ingested cannabis? And the story is beginning to show that, yeah, there are some people out there who are biologically vulnerable that once they start using cannabis on a regular basis, again, changes the wiring in the brain to the point that even when they stop using cannabis, what's left is a mood disorder psychosis a, a scar if you will and that's really tricky because then it suggests wait a minute we better find out who those people are who are at risk so that they don't get exposed to this substance uh in the future and, and i think that's a really really tricky thing but it's an, it's an important thing that we have to do in our field my uh, my first patient without going into too much detail essentially he smoked for the first time and just completely flipped yeah to just I can't go into too much detail right. about it, but essentially we had to just tell them you're allergic to cannabis. Right. It wasn't laced. Yeah. It wasn't laced. It wasn't laced. It was just pure, pure cannabis. Yeah. And that happens with people. And again, you know, going back to what we I initially said when we first mm -hmm. started off, just because you've had a good experience with it doesn't mean that other people have. It might be a small percentage of people that end up in our office that have yeah. used way too much. Yeah. And what I what I often notice is it, it kind of starts like you mentioned, the earlier they start, they're they start to smoke and they're treating anxiety, they're treating yep. depression, they're having a tough time as a kid, and they just start using more and more. The potency starts tolerance develops. Yeah. Yeah, you develop a more. tolerance. Yeah. 
And then it's every day. It's all day. They're going to work and then right. they go to work and then they end up getting in trouble at work. They come to work smelling like weed. And right. it's, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, Stalled development. And, and that's where, again, that's part of that stereotype when people say, well, what does someone with a cannabis addiction look like? Yeah. We close our mind's eye. We're still thinking 90s, long hair, grunge, you know, lazy, listening to records in the basement. But that's not what it is. When you look at people who show up to treatment for cannabis addiction, all walks of life. CEOs, doctors, lawyers, old, young, ethnic minorities, white people, you name it. But all the story is the same, that their relationship with cannabis has taken the, uh, an uh, uh, unhealthy turn. It's caused problems, and they still turn to cannabis thinking cannabis will help their problem, when in fact it just makes it worse. And you, you just don't see them like don't you do see opiates yeah. and, and coke. Right. You don't see them. You don't but see them exist. because, again, you don't see like the cannabis withdrawal it's there, but it's not nearly as shocking and as intense as opiate withdrawal. Could you talk about that? The, the yeah, cannabis and withdrawal? so like if you there is a cannabis withdrawal where if you're using regularly and then you stop anywhere between 48 hours to 72 hours later, you can develop withdrawal symptoms, which might be trouble sleeping, uh, nausea, um, not eating, a little flu-like symptoms. It's it's vague. It's not, you know, what's going, what, what what's happening. It doesn't result in death, but it still doesn't feel good. And it's enough to kind of screw up your day is what we usually say to people. So oftentimes people don't recognize that what they're going through is withdrawal. So they just think, oh, I got a bad batch. Or you know what, I, I just need to use more. So they use more and then they feel better. But then just deepens the cycle of the body getting so tolerant uh, that it has to have higher levels of cannabis in order to maintain normal body functions. Mm. I think we somewhat got off track because we were talking about legalization. What are some concrete positives? I don't know if you can go bullet point by bullet point, but what are some concrete positives of legalization? Well, the number one uh, for me is if we legalize and regulate properly is to eliminate the unregulated market. Uh, and what that means then is that there's a safer product available uh, for people to use. So a product that's not full of pesticides or poisons that is exactly what it says on the label. So that's a good thing. Mm. Number two, taking away the uh, the decriminalization part. I mean, think of how many lives have been ruined, not just impacted, but ruined by being arrested for cannabis through the years. That's a felony. It's a felony on your record if you get arrested for cannabis possession with intent to distribute. We're talking five, ten years in federal prison. You can't get a job after that. Um, number three is again, the tax revenue base. And that's always a, an important part because if suddenly you have a billion dollar industry or whatever, and you're not collecting any taxes that go back to the government to use to make society better, where's that money go? And so oftentimes people wonder, well, where over the last 30 years have cannabis money gone? It's gone to criminal organizations or it's gone to underground cottage industry so the state never realizes that the federal government never gets that funds to reinvest into the community to mitigate the harm so that's number three number four it's just the right thing to do it's meeting people's demand the public has spoken <laughs> not just in our state but in many states across that the public wants cannabis as part of the american lifestyle so i think we need to respect the will of the people and that's why it should be there as, as a legalized service as a legalized experience but i think the harder part is figuring out how to do that properly to again to prevent addiction to prevent 
public harm, uh, you know, other sort of uh, negative aspects of making this more legal. Is there any concern for big corporations? Because once money becomes a part of the equation, Marlboro, I don't know all the cigarette yeah. companies. They're going to dive right in. Well, they already like, have. And, and again, that's what's called big weed. So big weed, a lot of cannabis companies are uh, supported by venture capitalist money, you know, Fortune 500 investors, you know, very sophisticated people. Uh, it's a whole, again, industry. A, a few of these conventions I've been to, we're talking 30, 40,000 people. So there's a massive number of investors attached to it. I think again, that's that's actually a good thing if it's regulated properly. If regulated, if regulated, because okay. again, you think like big tobacco. Now, on the face of value, they have a tremendous negative view of people view of big tobacco, but they still employ millions of people in America. There's the economic backbone of many different states. Um, they are tax based for for many states. So there's still a debate about you know well. What does big tobacco really do for Americans? We don't plan to get rid of big tobacco. So the same thing is about as big weed expands, how do we do it, do it properly so that they do it in a way that isn't predatory, that is on the up and up, and it has the best interest in, in people's lives moving forward. And I think that's challenging because, again, people will look at if you wanted to work for a cannabis industry. If I came out of college right now and I said to my parents, you know what, I'm going to go work for the cannabis industry. They're still going to be like, oh, really? You're going to do that? Why would you work for those people? Mm -hmm. But these are legitimate, above-board, regulated businesses. And I think as we legalize more and more, they'll become more and more. What I'd like to see, again, are those partnerships between cannabis industry, governments, nonprofits, university, and community-based organizations and centers. So that, so that people that don't have billions of dollars backing them can become entrepreneurs. That's right. Okay. Yeah, or vice versa. So you don't have these big faceless corporations going into like urban centers or inner cities and putting and liquor stores. That's right, and, exactly. Disproportionately, yeah. I mean, one of the things about big tobacco, you know, they had all this data and all this been revealed through years about targeting lower socioeconomic parts of the cities, urban cultures. You know, using specific marketing to try and get more business from a vulnerable population. So it's the same thing with cannabis is that we really shouldn't stand for that. And in fact, that's where like if a big cannabis company partnered with an urban community to say, what does your community need? How can we help to make the community better while still selling a product that the community is asking for? Hmm. And that's a little utopian, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think that's, that's, it's that's, a goal. that's the goal and that's the start. And I think, again, a lot of people, it's interesting. I work with a lot of, a lot of college students who want to get into the cannabis business. And we say to them, you know, you should look into that. And you should. And they say, well, I didn't know I could. I said, if it's a legal, above-board business that's regulated in the state, of course you can look at that. Now, the irony is that at UCLA, we can't endorse any of that. We can't take any money from cannabis industry because that's a violation of federal law. Uh, we can't promote students to go into working for a cannabis industry. But those are things I think we're going to change over time eventually and, 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 and modernize our thinking. So right now, the you mentioned earlier, you have, well, this is what the business would be about, cannabis, THC, CBD, some component of that. If, you're, if you take out the THC, 
I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a practicing psychiatrist. People have these questions of me all the time. CBD, how beneficial is it really in comparison to just smoking regular cannabis? Yeah. You know, <laughs> what, 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 what are we doing here? I never even heard about CBD three years ago. And then really? suddenly I can go down to my local drugstore and there it is on the shelf. It's everywhere. It. Yeah. Or I can buy it on Groupon. And again, it's I'll in just motion. Re- it's in, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's a $20 billion projected business. Uh, cosmetics, pets, cosmetics, pets. Uh, I was in a store the other day. It was CBD infused pillowcases. Mm. So again, um, the concept is amazing. The idea that here is a naturally derived compound that does not alter your senses, that can promote pain relief, reduce inflammation, improve immune defenses, improve sleep, improve just a sense of wellness, and have very little side effects. Sign me up. So you can see the selling point is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get confused as to why is it that I can go into a Bed Bath and Beyond and buy CBD infused sheets, but I can't go to a Ralph's and buy any, you know, THC. It goes back to 2018. There was something called the Farm Bill that got passed, which basically the United States said, "Hey, if you sell, you grow and sell hemp, which is a form of a cannabis plant." And hemp is defined as a cannabis plant that has less than 0.3% THC. So if you grow hemp plant, which is cannabis, you can now sell that and everything inside that plant anywhere in America. Drugstores, 7-Eleven, you name it. So that's why on the shelves when we see CBD-infused gummies on Groupon, it's a legal seller because they're selling... CBD infused products that were derived from a hemp plant that did not have THC above 0.3%. Oh, okay. So it's a very strange world because, again, it's very confusing to the average person. It's confusing to me when I go into how are they able to sell CBD? That's regulated. That's still technically CBD is still Schedule 1. CBD is still is Schedule, Schedule 1. one okay. uh, in the federal government's eyes. Mm. Schedule 1 when it's not derived from a hemp plant. When it comes from any other plant that has, um, you know, uh, THC above 0.3%, that's Schedule One. Okay. So it's it's very confusing. So at the end of the day, the story on CBD is that yeah, the science is beginning to show that it definitely helps with pain. It definitely probably helps with inflammation. It does help with sleep and anxiety. But again, what dose? Who knows? How to take it? Gummies, lozenge, puff, vape pen. Who knows? How long before it wears off its wellness? Nobody knows. How many times a day should I take it to maximize it? What time of day should I take it? Nobody knows. Do on I take, on a population level. Yeah, on yeah. a population, yeah. We're, we're nowhere near that. But so a lot of my patients say, hey, doc, what do you think of me trying it? I say, listen, I'm not going to stop you. But I always say the following. If you're going to try it, use it from a regulated dispensary. Keep notes on it very closely. Try and be consistent how you take it. And you tell me what happens. So oftentimes patients will come back and say, yeah, I tried it for two weeks at night, every night, same time, and I notice no difference. Well, then it's not really work. That helps. That's informative. Instead, they say, well, on Monday I took it at 2. I didn't take it again to Friday morning, and then I didn't take it again to Saturday night, and then I mixed it with alcohol. I have no idea whether it's working or not. So that, that's helpful to have patients inform us how they're using and whether or not that made a difference or not. That's what the research says. That's right. 
So in terms of the research um, for for cannabis itself, what is the uh, is there any consensus on what cannabis is effective for, or positive for? There is, and so right now, as of 2020, there's a uh, a summary book called uh, that's produced by the United States National Academy of Sciences called "The Health Effects of Cannabinoids and Cannabis." I think that's the title. And it's a summary of all the scientific work that's been done on cannabis since the last 40, 50 years. They concluded, and this is 2017, so again, three years have passed, mm-hmm. that cannabis is good for chronic pain. That cannabis is very good for nausea and vomiting caused by chemotherapy that you use for cancer treatments. The cannabis is really good, or is good if you have a nerve condition called multiple sclerosis and have something called muscle spasticity, your Mm -hmm. muscles tighten up and contract and it's very, very painful. And that's it. The rest of it is we're not sure if it works, but there's enough scientific data to say, yeah, it does work for chronic pain. But what kind of pain? There's different kinds of chronic pain, right? There's musculoskeletal pain, there's neuropathic pain, there's emotional pain. So, there's diabetes pain. So as of right now, it just says the condition of chronic whole body pain. Your body just is in pain. So and even that's still not precise enough, but it's a starting point. Mm-hmm. So now since 2017, there have been other studies that have agreed or disagreed or added to that body of knowledge. But again, as of today, the patient walks to me into my office and say, what dose should I take for chronic pain? And technically by law, by California law, I not I can't recommend or I can't make a prescription. That's number one. I can make a recommendation to use cannabis, but I cannot make a recommendation with specificity. So I can't say again, Thomas, use OG Kush three times a week, and on every other night take down an edible of whatever brand, Kiva brand chocolate, and use one vape pen throughout. The, the day. I, I can't say that right now. That's a prescription. Right. I can make a recommendation that, you know what, based on your condition, I believe cannabis may help your condition. And that's the level of the recommendation that the medical board of California is comfortable with us doing. There are three things at this point that I think, because I don't know who's listening to this. It could be a parent. It could be people that already know about cannabis. It could be people angry about to write us on right. YouTube. <laughs> I don't know. But let's assume that there are people that don't know anything about this is their first time listening to a podcast. I think we've laid out what cannabis is. I think CBD and THC, that's been laid out. You mentioned three things, edibles. You mentioned wax and you mentioned dabs. What the hell are those? So these are all different (laughs) kinds of cannabis and how you can consume it. So. Let's, Can- start with, let's start with edibles. Yeah, I got so, three yeah. Things, so three cannabis things. products come in a whole host. And if you were walking in a dispensary, that's what's so interesting. So my first, I guess called homework assignment to those who are curious is go into a legal dispensary if you're over 21 and ask questions, look around, become familiar with what products are being sold and how they're being sold. As an example, the most classic way of ingesting cannabis, of course, is smoking it. Um, flour. They call it just smoking flour. You just put it in a bowl or you roll it up in a cigarette and you smoke a joint. That's the classic way of ingesting cannabis. But you also can ingest it orally. You can eat it. And that comes normally, typically, in a form of an edible, like uh, a gummy. But you can also drink it just in a standard tea or just a soda. Um, and that would all be kind of oral ingestions of cannabis. Then you can... Um, 
You can also take a, what, what we call a high-potency product, like a vape pen, which would be an oil, or a dab, wax, or shatter. What these are, these are high-potency containing... Before you, before you even move on to dabs, yeah. can, can you lay out what the potential problems are with edibles? Oh, sure. Okay. So edibles, unlike smoking, you ingest it orally, so it goes into your stomach, and it's going to take a little longer for it to take effect. Mm-hmm. So what happens with some people is they take a gummy and they think it's like smoking cannabis. Oh, I should feel something right away. And they don't. So then they end up taking a second gummy and then a third gummy because it tastes good. (laughs) And then within the first 15 minutes, they've now taken, instead of say like two or three milligrams of cannabis or five, they've now taken 40. And if they're a novice user, as the body level goes up over the next hour, hour and a half, they can then reach a, a point of intense response. And also because edibles are much slower getting rid out of the body. So let's say you have an intense dosage, it'll still take 8, 10, 12 hours to get rid of. So it's not like alcohol where it metabolizes a little quicker. Metabolism off cannabis sometimes can be slow. So that's why if you're intoxicated and experiencing adverse effects, that could be problematic because you might be stuck in that zone for a while. The reason why I even thought that would be something very important, I, 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 I'm okay with... Uh, you know, cannabis. I really just have this is my own person. This is my own personal issue with with <laughs> right. edibles. Yeah, because the stuff that I've seen with edibles. Again, this is us in professionally yep. in practice. These are young people, by the way. Right above the age of twenty six, do what you want. But young people, I've seen ingest a cookie, yeah, and do what you just mentioned. Right. But even when it's not um, uh, overeaten, right, they have such a reaction to it. I forgot what the molecule is called. Um, when it gets metabolized in the liver, right, right, yeah, it's, a, it's a long fancy name, yeah. So it's a big fancy name, but essentially, what you what you just described was the fact that when you inhale something and you inhale cannabis, it goes directly into the bloodstream, it goes directly to the bloodstream, to the lungs, to the brain, and then bypasses the liver, and then ultimately, you know, is just you know excreted out in our in our urine and our poo. So there's no conversion, no. But when no. you eat it, it goes from your from your from your stomach. To your blood, to your liver, and it's converted to your kidneys. It's converted to something else, and that metabolites lingers around a lot longer, um, and it's just a different way of taking it in. So it all makes sense, you know. Like if you take, if you have an asthma, and you use an inhaler, you use a puffer, and you get an effect immediately Mm -hmm. because you go from your lungs to your right to your lungs. But lots of people with asthma, they take pills to kind of open up their lungs, and that just takes a while. So again. Rod administration, how you take it in matters because that will change your experience with it. These high potency products, and they have all sorts of fancy names. Now we're going to now we're going right. to dabs and okay. so essentially these are, are high potency products that look like goo or uh, real waxy substances, you know, like uh, caramel, toffee pudding, uh, beeswax, you know, real hard plastic candies. And the way they're used is that you, they're usually high; uh, they're fired up. Uh, so people light them up usually with a high flame, like a butane lighter, or, or or they'll melt them on an aluminum foil. And as they melt, the fumes that they give off are then usually inhaled directly into the lungs. So it's it's oh. it's essentially it's taking a high potency product quickly into the lungs. They're not eaten, they're not ingested, but because they have very high levels of THC in them, sixty to seventy percent, and you're inhaling them, you're getting them into your lungs quickly and rapidly 
And same thing, you'll have a very powerful effect right away. 60 to 70%. Yeah, uh, potency, that's right. And so the same thing, though, that's why when it's that potent, not only, you can take the same amount as, say, just a flower, but it's still going to linger around the body a lot longer because it's a much more potent product. It's going to bind to the body's receptors more tightly and, and it'll last longer. So a single use of a dab or a wax or shatter. And why is it called dab? Well, you're dabbing into your supply. You take a little dab out of this little like waxy oh. substance and then you put it and you dab it on a nail and you heat up the nail and then the fumes and then you inhale that. And there's a million YouTube videos on this too. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You can do it off a potato, you know, all sorts of interesting things. But, but for folks in the audience there, again, they say, well, is that illegal? No. If you're over the age of 21, if you buy high potency products in a dispensary and they tell you how to use it this way, that is not illegal. It feels illegal, <laughs> right? Be using all these various feels products. Feels dangerous, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and again, that's part of your education campaign. That's part of the question is that should high potency products be illegal? Should there be an upper limit to what a person can buy in a regulated dispensary of THC? And to that answer, we don't, we don't have an answer. Hmm. You know, we, we don't again like take cigarettes you know cigarettes an average cigarette has like three milligrams of nicotine well you can make nicotine products that are way 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 more potent in the in the cigarette but they don't because they're bounded by law not to so you know and that's part of the ultimate question is again what is the ideal thc potency that's enough to give people a good recreational experience but minimize public health harmful impacts. And to that question, I have no idea. It's tough. It's tough. Tough. Very tough. Yeah. So we're getting towards the end. My final question for you. Well, it might be a series of questions, but where is the direction of research headed? Well, wherever we can get Mul multiple money. Multiple directions. <laughs> wherever we can get money. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, here are the essential questions we have. Uh, we want to know, at least at UCLA, what we're looking at is, <clears throat> number one, how do we use cannabis to alleviate pain, to treat pain better? And we're talking physical and emotional pain. So I foresee us going down the route of trying to understand clinical trials. So we can say this version of cannabis works really well for pain or for sleep or for anxiety. That's what we'd love to do. Number two, I want to look at again, how do we stop people from developing cannabis addiction? Cannabis addiction is terrible. It ruins lives. It, people suffer. We don't want any of that. We want to keep all of this in the lane of people being able to enjoy cannabis recreationally in an adult fashion without harmful effects. So a lot of our research questions are going to be, what's the best way to treat cannabis addiction? Medication, psychotherapy. Um, what's the best way of getting people to identify with cannabis addiction early on to then go in and get treatment before it's too late? You know, there's a huge difference between coming into treatment today versus going into treatment three years from now. So lots of various things like that. For me, again, if, uh, just involved with the sports psychiatry world, I'm, I'm fascinated to know how does cannabis impact athletic performance? Does it make you a better fighter? Does it make you a better basketball player? Or does it hurt? Hmm. We've had some professional athletes say, without cannabis, my career would have been over years ago. I've had other athletes whose careers never got started because of cannabis. So really interesting thing. And along the way, we're going to find out public health questions that we never even dreamed of that are going to come up. So as an example, before the pandemic hit, 
there was a series in 2019 of men and women who contract young, healthy people who started developing these serious lung injuries from vaping. And they ended up hospitalized in the ICU and some of them died. I think this was in the news. Big time in the news, 2019, before the pandemic. There was about almost 60 deaths in America from uh, vaping-associated lung illnesses. Young people that should not be dead, that were dead. The vast majority of those young people were vaping cannabis-related products. So it turns out that we think that why their lungs were, were subjected to such intense damage is that they were vaping unregulated cannabis products that had this chemical called vitamin E acetate in there that was really bad for the lungs that would never, ever be in a regulated product. It was an unregulated uh, product. It's cheap. It's easy. It's, you know, it's like, you know, grade D meat. Uh, and customers had none the wiser. And wh- when we started to look at that issue, when we asked some of these people, well, where did you get the cannabis? Oh, I got it in the dispensary. But the dispensary they bought it from was an unregulated dispensary. So they had no idea that what they were buying was not a tested product. So those are some of the issues that I never even dreamed of. And, and, and when we were starting to learn about that, we said, oh, we better get in front of this to understand what's in this cannabis product that's killing people off. Why is it that dispensaries are allowed to still sell this without being regulated? And again, should we even allow high-potency products like this to be on the market? We don't allow, again, certain pain meds to ever be on the market, even with prescription because of their potency. They're just not allowed. So at what point should we allow recreationally? What is that ceiling? What percentage of THC should we allow? Again, we don't know. Right. It's tough. It's it's tough tough. questions. You know, I I think one of the reasons why you're you're here is because I think you are able to look at this from a an unbiased, objective perspective, which I think is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have the answers to these questions, but we're willing to look at the evidence and and try to figure it out. Yeah. That's important. Absolutely. And 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 on our website, I'll put a quick shout out for that. It's cannabis.semel.ucla.edu. It's exactly what I was going to ask you. Cannabis.semel.ucla.edu. <laughs> we also have a Twitter handle, at uh, UCLA Cannabis. Uh, and right now, during the pandemic, we started to do monthly conversations about cannabis, where we do just what you're doing here. We bring in a cannabis expert, and we go into a deep dive on various uh, topics. Um, we've had one on cannabis and lung injury. We've had one on cannabis and uh, uh, CBD. And we're doing one tomorrow actually on just what it's like to be a cannabis researcher and all the barriers that we face. So this is by putting out what we think to be our good academic products will hopefully stimulate a whole new generation of researchers to get involved and and uh, start spitting out research that, that makes a difference. Is there any other way that people can support uh, uh, UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative or some other place in the country? Uh, yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website. They can sign up. They can join our mailing list. They, they can donate if they want to donate uh, tax-free uh, tax benefits. We can do that. Or if you're a student uh, in the Los Angeles area, um, college, medical student, or research, uh, give us a call. We're always looking to do collaborations. And if you're a community-based organization and you have stories and ideas, we're open to uh, collaborations. We can do education. We can do trainings. And we, we just want to learn more. We're just hungry for, for, for talking about cannabis. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't say this enough. I think the, the whole point of this discussion was not to go for, not to go against, 
but to just lay out what we know. <laughs> there, there you go. That's it. There you go. That's there it. Go. So, um, again, cannabis enthusiasts, anti-cannabis people, people who don't care, relax. <laughs> <laughs> That's super good. All right. Uh, anything else you want to bring up? No, this is great. Uh, again, cannabis.semo.ucla.edu. Mm-hmm. Take a look at that. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. All right. Fantastic. We're all finished. Thank yeah. you so much.